Wouldn't you love to know that God is pleased with you? That the God who made you, and one day you will have to stand before, will be delighted to welcome you into his heaven. We spend so much of our lives trying to please others. But actually, the Bible tells us that pleasing God is our highest calling. It's our biggest need. The Bible says that if God is not pleased with us, then our future is eternally bleak. If God is not pleased with us, if God's anger rests on us, then we will experience that in hell forever. That problem is the big theme of 1 Thessalonians. Jesus is coming back and we will be called to stand before God. And the brilliant message is, as we see in our reading this morning, that it is so possible for Jesus, for God to be pleased with us. Chapters 1 to 3 says a lot about how we can be right in God's sight, how we can be pure, how we can be the sort of people that God is pleased with, how we can be part of God's family. We call it the church, the worldwide church, how we can turn to God and gain saving faith, experience God's love, no eternal hope. That is the big message of chapters 1 to 3, which putting all together... That is how we can be sure that God is pleased with us. Faith, love, giving us hope. But God being pleased with us is not just about something that happened to us when we became a Christian in the past. It is also something that has to be lived out day in, day out as we head for the future. Paul wants to show us what our lives must be aiming for if we want to show we are serious about pleasing God. The Thessalonians were doing a good job, but they still had a way to go. And Paul's push in this section is, if we're Christians, we need to keep going as Christians. Strong language Paul uses. He says, we ask you, we urge you to keep going living for Jesus, living lives that are pleasing to God. Sometimes we like to reinterpret that, don't we? We think, great, I've become a Christian. Now, I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. Maybe you haven't done that. And if you haven't, well, you should. And it is so easy. You put your faith in God as the Thessalonians did. You turn from You're living your own way of life, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. They turned from their old way of life and they turned to the living God. And then they spent their lives from then on living for God as they awaited for Jesus' return. That's what we have to do. Can I just throw in, at this point, we're planning a Christianity Explored course starting very soon. Um, It's an opportunity to go through this process in more detail in a very informal way. It's an opportunity to listen to what the Bible says, ask questions if you want to. Um, Some people are a bit worried because they're worried, you know, this is all going to be a bit like an exam. You don't have to do anything apart from sit and listen if you want to. And you can ask any questions that you want to. Um, If you'd like to be involved in that, please do let me know. We're looking to start that very soon. Once we are Christians, though, it's not just a case of thinking, phew, I'm in. I don't need to do anything else. So often Christians think the expectation of us 
is if we want to go the extra mile as far as being a Christian is concerned, we should try and do a bit more good stuff. We should try and live for God, but it doesn't really matter because we're in and that's all that counts. Some people think it's if you want to be really keen as a Christian, you need to be trying to put the practical teaching of the New Testament into practice. But you don't have to do that because you're already rescued by Jesus. When Paul says here, I ask you, I urge you to live a life pleasing to God. He actually says twice, this is not me talking. He says it's Jesus talking. This is what Jesus expects of us. In verses 1 and 2. It's not the super spiritual, extra keen Christians who are to do these things. It's for anyone and everyone who has any hope of being saved and going to heaven. The Christian life is a life of change. It's a life of doing more and more to please God. Those words came up twice in our reading. And Paul tells us, as I mentioned in the reading, it's God's will for us to be sanctified, to be set apart for God's use, to be holy. To be a Christian is to be continually trying to reject sin and to follow Jesus. Like I said, I've heard so many people over the years saying, I know this is wrong, but God wants me to be happy. My answer to that is, where do you get that from? You don't read that in the Bible. Not where happiness is short-term happiness. The easy option for now. God is far more interested in our holiness than our happiness because God knows that true joy, long-lasting happiness that will last forever will only be found when we pursue holiness. And that may hurt for a while. Last week, I wasn't here, I was down in Reading, but I know you finished with a song which puts the pursuit of holiness in such clear language. Let me read those words to you you again. The song is a prayer, and it's a prayer that God would purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Now, do you know how gold and precious silver are purified? It's in a fire, in a furnace. And the song goes on, refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy. The song is saying, God, please do whatever it takes to make me more like Jesus, even if it hurts. I know there are bits of my life that need to be removed. Destroy them, burn them away, God. I would rather you burned away those bits of my life that offend you than let me allow them to disappoint you. That's the attitude. To be sanctified is to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And even the hard things that happen to us, he will use for our eternal good. That's what James says. That's why we can consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. God's will is our sanctification and we show we are Christians when we pray fearfully and with eyes half closed sometimes when we pray lord this scares me what i'm going through but if this is your will for me bring it on now that sounds like i've got it all sorted my so often response when something goes wrong is lord why are you doing this to me and then after the event i think actually 
I can see why God allowed that to happen sometimes. God did change me then, and I am better for it. The challenge for me is to trust God the next time something bad happens. Change is vital. Now Paul gives us a couple of key areas of life where the Thessalonians needed a bit more refining, where they needed to change. They were doing well, but they still had a way to go. So Paul says, you're doing this, carry on doing it more and more. The first area of life was sexual immorality. It was a biggie then, just as it is now. Interestingly, the people I mentioned who were trying to convince me and themselves that God was quite all right with what they were doing because God wanted them to be happy. Most of them were trying to pursue sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. Paul couldn't be clearer in how wrong that is. That's the first key way that we live to please God, and that was David's title. Now, I've got all over the place here, haven't I, Rob? Let's go back to the sermon slides. Where are they? There we are. That was David's title last week, Living to Please God. And the practical outworking of that was avoiding sexual immorality. Now, along with that, Paul says... We shouldn't just be living to please God. We need to be loving to please God. On the one hand, sexual immorality is a negative thing. But now Paul goes very positive. If you want to sort of understand a bit more about this sexual immorality thing and why it's so serious, I was listening to a brilliant podcast yesterday by Tim Keller. You can find it on the Gospel in Life website. A brilliant depiction of the wonder of the gift of sex and why the Bible's way of enjoying sex is the best way. Sounds a bit racy, doesn't it? It's brilliant. Have a listen to that. Tim Keller, Gospel in Life. The beauty of sex, I think it's called. But this morning we're looking at this idea of loving to please God, the importance of love. God is pleased when Christians in churches love one another. Now, what does it mean to be loving in the way that pleases God? The first question is this. The content of love. What should be included in love? In a way, verse 9, if you've got your Bible open, is actually not that helpful, is it? Paul says, you've got to love each other. But I don't need to tell you about that because you're doing it already, which for us is a bit frustrating because we want to know what Paul is talking about. He says, I don't need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Love is really important, Paul says, but God doesn't think it necess- Paul doesn't think it necessary to explain what he means by love. Somehow they'd been taught directly by God, which gets me wondering what had happened. There are a few possibilities. Most likely, I think they were loving each other, even though no one had told them to, other than the Holy Spirit. When they became Christians, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, came to live in them. And then Paul says in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, number one, love. So actually Christians shouldn't be taught or shouldn't need to be taught to love other Christians. It should be the obvious thing to do. As they were blown away by the love of Jesus for them, by the love of God for them in Jesus, they felt an immediate bond with those who had been saved along with them. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. When the Holy Spirit is at work, we should expect to see love. If we don't see love, there's a bit of a problem. So they were already loving each other. 
now Paul tells them they need to do it more and more. But what does this love entail? It would be a bit frustrating for us if we had to leave it there. But actually, we have the rest of the Bible. And so much of the Bible is teaching us what love should look like. It's not just about feelings. Love in the Bible is not all about sex. Jesus tells us what love is in John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did Jesus love his friends? That's what we need to look at when we need, want to learn how we should love each other. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. Now, of course, Jesus died on the cross. We can't do that for other people. But that's not the only way that Jesus loved. He helped his friends. He went out of his way to help his friends. He spent time with his friends. Did all sorts of things for his friends. He taught his friends. He helped them understand things. So there's two good things for a start, isn't it? We love. Jacob was bang on, wasn't it? Was it Jacob or Josh who said that? Caring for each other. Helping each other. That's what we need to be doing. <laughs> he healed people. Mm, I can't do that. But I can pray for people that they would be healed. And there might be things I can do that make people's lives a bit easier, their pain a bit less. Something we should be asking ourselves, what can I do to help people in that situation? He fed people. Okay, he only had a packed lunch and he fed 5,000 people, but it's practical, isn't it? We love each other as we feed each other, as we invite each other into our homes, as we get involved in doing stuff which involves providing food for people key part of loving he served others John 13 is at the last supper Jesus is just about to wash his disciples feet in fact I think he just has by the end of chapter 13 he took on the role of a servant for those he loved which is a great picture for us this is a tricky one he got angry with his closest friends. When Peter says, Lord, you're not going to the cross, Jesus shouts at him, get behind me, Satan. You haven't got in mind the things of God. Listening to another podcast. We were on a long car journey yesterday. Lots of podcasts to listen to. Tim Keller, talking about anger, said sometimes it's a sin not to get angry. When something bad happens to someone we love, it's sinful to be indifferent and say, oh, it doesn't matter so easy to sin in anger we mustn't do that but sometimes we love people by being angry with them and saying you can't do that you shouldn't do that always being careful not to sin jesus prayed for his closest friends in that brilliant prayer just after john 13 he suffered he died now Paul doesn't need to spell out these sorts of things and there's many more we could go for because the Thessalonians were already doing this. These are the sorts of things they're doing. Paul's point is this, we please God when we love each other like this. 
But which others? Who should we be trying to please? Who are we meant to love? Paul is a bit more helpful here, as we see in verse 10. Verse 10, I've called the arena of love. No, I call it the context of love. Oh, no, this is going to be embarrassing now. I was so pleased with myself with my alliteration, and then I got so embarrassed by it, I changed them in my notes, but I forgot to change it on the screen. Please forgive the alliteration. The context of love, the arena of love. These, this is the, the area... These are the people we are meant to love. In verse 10 it says, in fact, you do love all of God's family. It's not just the people you're sitting next to. It's not just the people you're related to. It's all of God's family in the local church. That is the arena of, thank you, (laughs) the arena of, I'll tell you what the next one is meant to be in a minute, the arena of love. Where are we meant to be demonstrating this love? Primarily, it's in church. Of course, there's stuff in the Bible about loving anybody, loving our enemies, loving our neighbors, loving anybody we come across. But Paul is not talking about that here. He's talking here about the need, the highest need, to love our church family. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. The Thessalonians were doing it. They needed to do it more. The arena for this self-sacrificing, other person-centered, caring, praying, sharing, helping love is the church. Brothers and sisters, Paul has already called them. That's the definition of the church, people who can call God Father. And so they are brothers and sisters. You do love all of God's family, he says in verse 10. This can only take place in church. The basic unit for showing love is the local church. Love is not just a feeling. It's a practical commitment to our brothers and sisters. It's a challenge, isn't it? We are to be showing practical, sacrificial, sharing, caring love to all of God's family here in Grace Church. Putting the needs of others before our own needs. Where others are anybody in the church family. Not just the ones we like. The ones we get on with. The ones we're related to. It's so important. As an indicator of the spiritual life of the church. As we love Jesus more, we will love those who love Jesus more. And as a witness to those outside the church, the promise of John 13 is, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for each other. How will we see the power of God in action? God's love, God's power is most clearly seen as people who would normally be enemies, normally be competitors, normally at each other's throats or not having anything to do with each other, coming together in a practical, caring, loving relationship. In a meeting we had on Thursday, someone prayed that people outside the church would be curious about the gospel. Someone else asked, how will this curiosity work? I think it's by living this sort of love. What does make that difference? As people see that The church, the message of the church, the gospel, does change lives. We've had some funerals recently. I've been particularly encouraged by the number of people coming up to me after the funerals and saying, 
I don't do church. I'm an atheist. But there seems to be something going on here which I've not seen before. And I like this. It's not my preaching. It's people seeing practical love between Christians. That's the the arena of love. But notice the geographical boundaries of the arena of love. Yes, it's all about God's people, but not just in Grace Church. Did you notice that? The Thessalonians loved all of God's family in Macedonia. Macedonia was a big area. I measured on a map last night. If Macedonia was mapped over onto England, it would go from the east coast into Wales, and it would go from Southampton up to above Leeds. That's a big area. And the Thessalonians were loving God's people across that area. Now, of course, the practicalities of loving people 200 miles away were significant. How do you do that? They couldn't help in the same way, but they could help in different ways. And they did. They showed love across the miles. Many of us have never been to Brockley. Although, like I say, we do have people from Brockley watching our services. But we can pray for them. As an expression of our love. That's why we were doing it. We continue to pray for them and praise God for what's going on there. Please keep doing that this week. We have churches closer to home. Had a lovely time on Tuesday night at Laxfield with our dear brothers and sisters from Laxfield, Cransford and Layston. I felt absolutely rough but I was so glad to be there. Sharing. Hearing about people who are really ill in those churches. Challenges that the churches are facing activities that the churches are undertaking so we could show love by praying for them it's been such a blessing for us last week to be down in Cary Baptist Church in Reading sharing with them there treeing yesterday at their induction we support other churches and missions financially we don't make as much of that as we should we're going to try and strengthen those links moving forward but we are not all it is in terms of the church we have a big family And we are called to love them. Then there's the worldwide church. The plight of our brothers and sisters around the world. Did you know that there were over 200 Christians murdered on Christmas Eve in Nigeria? Just because they're Christians. And the terrorist group thought it would be fun to go out and kill some Christians on Christmas Eve. That should break our hearts. Stuff going on in Indonesia is horrible. We should love these people. It should hurt. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. Those are words I need to hear. The importance of loving the church those who are Christians who are not part of this local church more and more one last thing as we finish and this is a bit tricky the limits of love the constraints of love no the limits of love that's what we're going for thank you Rob that was quick the limits of love on the surface this is quite straightforward these verses there's no reason why we can't treat these verses at face value Paul says make it your ambition to lead a quiet life have no ambition is what he's saying literally mind your own business work with your hands just as we told you so your daily life may win the respect of outsiders yeah keep your head nose clean don't make a fuss just get on with the practicalities of the Christian life 
We could just leave it there. But what has this to do with the importance of love? Or for that matter, the return of Jesus, which is what comes next in Paul's thinking. Is there a logical flow here? Or is Paul just throwing out some random comments now? How about this for an idea? And this is not all my own work. I've been reading a few books on this to find out how people far cleverer than I think. Imagine you're part of a church. Hopefully it shouldn't be too hard to imagine. Part of a church that is committed to loving each other. And there are generous people who are ready to help anyone in the church. Might it be possible that some people in the church might end up looking to others in the church to help them with needs that they could perhaps meet themselves by working. Someone might think, well, I could go out to work to earn some money, but I could just go and ask them and they'll give me some money. What shall I do? I know. I'll take it easy. It's a possibility, isn't it? If you live in a loving church... There is always the danger that some people will take advantage of that in a not helpful way and use it as an excuse for laziness. Now, I'm not saying that if you can't work, you're in this category. It's more if you won't work. You've taken a conscious decision not to work. Into that situation, Paul says, don't quit your day job just because you've got people around you who are generous. Work with your hands like we told you. Work is important. Like I say, he's not speaking to people who can't work because of illness or circumstance. But when you have people who won't work by choice, Paul says, focus on your own business. Make sure you don't try and take advantage of others. You see, Paul is putting a limit on how love should be shared in the church. The command here is for Christians to show love, not for Christians to demand to be loved or take advantage of love. And it's not just laziness that could cause people to rely on other people. The return of Jesus is a very big theme in Thessalonians and next week we'll see that some people, possibly many, were fully expecting Jesus to return in a couple of weeks time or a few months time. And some of them were thinking, well, we don't need to go out and work, do we? Because, well, we've got enough in the church to keep us all going. So why don't we all sit back and wait for the return of Jesus? Why don't we just get excited about the return of Jesus? And we can just spend all our time singing and praising Jesus, waiting for him to return. Paul says, make it your ambition. Get excited about your lives now as you live for Jesus. Don't get all excited about the future to the point that you stop doing what you should be doing now. Keep your day job. Work with your hands. Then you can show love to others. You can help others. And as you do that, your daily life might draw the respect and maybe the curiosity of outsiders. This is how to please God, by loving the ones he loves, his family, locally and further afield, making our love for others our priority, not demanding love from others, being sacrificial. I am very encouraged because we do have a lot of people who show love in the church, so many people. 
I was struck by this again this morning. I came round to cause a bit of chaos because um, people on the um, tech team um, weren't available. So I said to Rob, I'll come and help. And I just stood around and watched Rob do his stuff. I watched Rory putting up speaker stands. I had Milo telling me how tall the speaker stand should be. I just thought, this is brilliant. I was passing the cables to Rory. He was plugging them into the back of the flight case behind me. It was brilliant to see generations serving together, loving. And we shouldn't forget that. As we think about receiving love, it's so easy for us to come along sometimes on a Sunday morning and just sit down and forget the hard work that's been going on behind the scenes. I do that. I normally come around at 10, 10 past 10, and everything's set up and it's working. We just take it for granted. We should be grateful for those who are sacrificially getting up early to come here and set out chairs and to get stuff sorted out, to look after our children in Sunday club and creche, who do so many things for the church. It's great that we have people doing that, and we should all be looking to do that more and more as we have opportunity. Not everyone can. But loving each other in this practical way is so important. All the time modeling our love on the amazing love that God has for us in Jesus.